Thank you so much for joining us here at Re-Encounters. Before this episode begins, it's important to say that this podcast may contain strong language and adult themes. It is also going to contain spoilers. So if you care about being surprised the first time you watch the source material of what we're talking about in this episode, then don't listen just yet. Go and watch or listen to it, take it in and come on back when you're ready. If you're like me and don't care about spoilers, then feel free to keep on listening. But don't say that we didn't warn you. All that being said, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Hello, Boris. Здравей сам, здравейте всички. Добре дошли в нашия подкаст Re-Encounters. Или нови срещи. Well, that's gorgeous. Um, I know that it's been quite a while, but I still don't know that much Bulgarian. Shame on me, but... Um... Oh, that's fine. I think I'll just pepper it in all throughout this episode. Ето така, просто защото мога или просто защото искам. Но, да. Това просто ще малка изненада за всички тези слушатели от нас, които може би поназнайват български, може би са израснали с български и които просто са решили да ни последват от някакви различни части на света или част от българската държава. Здравейте! I love the sound of Bulgarian. I think that it's one of those languages that you can just uh, listen to. Um, and it's, it's quite musical. Oh, okay. A question for the listeners to get in touch with us about. Could you say something in English, Boris? Well, I don't know why you would ever want me to speak in anything other than English for the purposes of this podcast, for the purpose of marketing this and podcast. Stop. And could I ask you to say something in Bulgarian? Искам по този начин да кажа на всички от вас, които слушат нас и които могат да разбират български, че много ви обичаме и много, много се радвам, че сте тук с нас. И много, много прегледки ви пращаме на всички. Lovely. Thank you. My question to the listeners... Can you hear a change in Boris's voice when he speaks in Bulgarian as opposed to English? Because as far as I'm concerned, I notice a slight deepening of his voice when he speaks in Bulgarian. So do you mean that I go from soprano to an alto? <laughs> um, I mean, if, I'm sure you have a lovely um, contralto bass. singing voice. <laughs> We know what your bass voice sounds like. Anyway. Butch. Um, so yeah, if you'd like to get in touch and tell me whether I'm wrong or right, no matter where you are, if you speak Bulgarian or not, um, then please let me know if I'm right or wrong about Boris's voice being higher in English and lower in Bulgarian. This questionnaire is open to people of all language backgrounds. <laughs> yes, and anyone and everyone who listens to our podcast. Definitely. But you might be asking yourselves, why is Boris speaking in Bulgarian when he hasn't? I don't think you have in previous episodes. I've tried not to. I've tried not to alienate the listeners too much. And I've tried not to reveal too much about... Um, the origins of my linguistic background, let's say. Well, we have mentioned Bulgaria a few times, but... True, true. Um, I think that it's uh, it's good this time around. Yes. Because the film that we're covering is a Bulgarian film. Yes, exactly. Um, we're moving on through a little bit of a European tour, let's say. Well, it's quite interesting, I, I, especially considering uh, what the last film we covered was. Mm. We're kind of in a little mini section um, of the podcast where we're doing foreign language films. Exactly. And that's pretty cool because mm. um, I, I wouldn't have wanted us to purely focus on uh, the American and British markets, the dominance of the American mm -hmm. market mm -hmm. on the film industry as a whole. 
it it is the way it is. It's unfortunate in some ways because there are amazing non-English language films. Absolutely. Out there. Um, and hopefully, through our little journey currently eastwards, we'll see what direction it takes further on. We will be able to introduce you to, or even give you some inspiration to follow some more foreign language films. Yeah, we're taking you on a little bit of a journey. But yes, uh, this was a film that you have obviously seen before. It's something of a landmark film in Bulgaria. Yep, absolutely. And it paved the way for a wonderful female actor who I think we're going to come on to very soon. Mm. And it was one of the first films in her career which really helped to establish her dominance over the wider Bulgarian film industry as a dramatic actress with amazing beauty and presence on mm. camera researching mainly using the english language forms of information resources on the internet mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. it's been slightly more difficult to mine information this time around but we've we've found a way we have found a way um, not to mention the plethora of information which um was not readily available because of the socialist slash communist regime in Bulgaria at the time of the film and the time of this particular female actor's presence and growth and development within Bulgaria. But mm. we've done our best, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, I think we have. First of all, question from me. How did your parents react when you told them that we were going to be watching this film for the podcast? I believe they were very happy and excited because... As you said yourself, this is a landmark Bulgarian film. This is a staple of Bulgarian cinema, and it is also shown in schools, mainly as a companion to a short story. But I believe the film stands on its own legs, and it's worthy of being seen, even with no prior reference to the short story which it is based on. And as I mentioned before, this was one of the first films which really cemented this young female actor's name within the Bulgarian film industry and it later propelled her to star in films such as Lady's Choice or Dami Kanyat or even Dangerous Charm, namely Upasen Char. I think it's time to introduce this as yet nameless film as far as many of our listeners will be concerned mm. um, because, uh, as, as we say, it is a very influential film within Bulgaria and within the Soviet sphere, because this film yes. was made in 1960, well, it was released in 1964. The film is called, uh, now correct me if I get this wrong, but Kradetsut na Praskovi. Almost there, almost there. I think people will have understood you still, but the way I would have said it is Kradetsut na Praskovi. Kradetsut na Praskovi, which in English is The Peach Thief. Yes, indeed, The Peach Thief. I, I just wanted to say before... I imagine a lot of our Bulgarian listeners may have guessed the name of this female actor, whose name actually is Nevena Kokonova. So that surname is spelled K-O-K-A-N-O-V-A, Kokonova. I just wanted to say that this, luckily, was seen with English subtitles through completely legal means. Oh my god. By renting the film on a website called gledam.bg. So that's spelled G-L-E-D-A-M dot B-G. Nice. Well, uh, Gledon, please give us a uh, nice little sponsorship if you're there, if you're listening. We'll tag Hi. you on our social media. Um, <laughs> um, 
yeah, uh, that's that's the film, uh, The Peach Thief. It's been super exciting to watch it, to experience it for the first time. Mm. Um, of course, you've seen it before, indeed. Um, but the only time I have seen it was more than ten years ago. Oh right, okay. Yes. So the film Peach Thief was actually based on a short story of the same name, released in 1948 by the author Emilian Stanif. And the only context in which I had seen this film before was in school whilst working on the short story itself. Cool. Um, Much as you would watch a production of King Lear, I imagine, while studying it at school. Oh, so you'd say it's of the same cultural importance in Bulgaria as Shakespeare? This film? Yes. Not the story. The story itself is, I want to say, mediocre. It is well known, however, I believe the film reached a wider audience and propelled it to new heights. Okay, okay. Quite apart from anything else, it was a very interesting film for me because it kind of made me think about some very important topics mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. within filmmaking. I've seen some excellent and some awful examples of Soviet films before. Ooh, okay, um, okay. Most of them coming from Soviet Russia at the time. Of course. A um, few examples would be Solaris, um, Man with a Movie Camera, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and Battleship Potemkin. Okay. Um, Battleship Potemkin, of course, probably defining certain Soviet styles of filmmaking, including a very important one, which Man with a Movie Camera also is, is prominent um, in showing, which is Soviet montage. Mm. Um, Soviet montage theory was and is incredibly influential in the way that films are made. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. There's a big old spiel about what exactly Soviet montage theory is, and I'll come on to that, but I'm kind of grateful for this film reintroducing me to it and making me think about it in a new way. Okay. Um, because Peach Thief was not a, as conventional as the film is in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It made me think about this um, the Soviet montage theory in a very different way because it's not conventional in the way that it's made. Or at least I wouldn't say so. But we'll come on to that. Um, True. I'll be very interested to hear your views, even seeing as I haven't seen any of the films you've mentioned. Oh, <laughs> there's a shocker. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we're back to our usual scheduled program, everyone. Hey, no, we're not. This is what I haven't seen, remember? Oh, yeah, um... true. <laughs> <laughs> so before we move on to actually talking about our expectations, I want to just pick you up on something you mentioned about the film, namely that it plays on conventions and it being slightly more conventional than the usual films we've seen, I believe. Namely, in the fact that it presents, just spelling it out for you guys, a love story. A love story in wartime, and we'll get more into the details of it further down the line of this podcast. But I just wanted to maybe mention established conventions of storytelling, such as the well-made play, and the conventions of maybe the five-act structure, which people may be aware of through different dramatic plays or even in novels because I believe we have a very as you said conventional film and that extends to the storytelling elements of it namely how you are presented with a love story which is impossible because of multiple factors and that results in tragedy at the end mm. I think that is a vague enough description before I move into the description of the film later on in detail yeah I mean it I wasn't surprised. Well, I was surprised beforehand to hear that it was based on a short story. Okay. But afterwards, after watching it, <laughs> I was sort of like, yeah, that's a short story. Hmm. Um, 
Because of the lack of substance? Well, it's not the lack of substance, okay. it's la- lack of plot. Mm, um, okay. You know, it's a very simple plot, and not a lot happens, although that feeds into Soviet montage theory and the way that it's used. I think that one of the things that it does, and one of my expectations actually, maybe this is a good segue, mm. it's a conventional film for a Westerner, but I wonder how conventional it must have been at the time mm. for people living behind the Iron Curtain in um, socialist Bulgaria. Okay. Uh, because it's quite a Western-framed story. Indeed. But if you if you kind of prise into it, the, the heart that's beating within the film is still very socialist completely um i think there are interesting comparisons there so uh, that that's one of my expectations um i did expect it to be quite strongly socialist mm-hmm. i expected there to be themes and ideas that could relate it to kind of propaganda for socialism and the soviets there are subtle ways of doing this and i think that actually my expectations were somewhat challenged in this case because Actually, the film is a lot more subtle than I thought it was going to be. But yeah, that's one of mine. Do you want to give one of yours? Yeah, why not? I believe one expectation I had for you whilst watching this was that you would find the lack of music a little bit awkward and weird. And that also you would feel maybe that the music, whenever it did get played, would be a bit too obvious and signposted at a lot of moments. Simply because the music... I believe is not used here in order to present too much of an artistic vision, but rather to highlight plot points which the audience may have already been led on to believe or may have been expecting. Okay. So in a way you can say that the use of music here and its lack is a bit stereotypical, but then again, what is stereotypical, what is conventional? when we look at well, there, such there are factors. actually there are actually some rules um, about what makes for stereotypical film music and it's mostly to do with the music mirroring the action there is mm. a specific term which at the moment has fallen out of my head film buffs please write in tell me what it is um, particularly film music buffs but it's mm. when, it's when the, the music is directly associated with the action going on think about a, a Tom and Jerry cartoon in terms of the way that they'll be jumping around underscore well, yeah, underscoring is, is a good point yes um, but a lot of music would underscore a point there's there's a difference between emotional mirroring okay and literally the beat of the music fitting in with what's happening on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know Tom hits the floor close to the mouse hole and, and as the thing comes down on where the mouse hole is the, the music goes boom Mm-hmm. Literally. And it's a holdover from silent film. Yeah. Back yeah. when there was no no one speaking, so the movements had to kind of be punctuated by the music, mm-hmm. which was playing the whole way through, because that was how you got a lot of your emotional beats as an audience member. Um, but yes, there, there, are, yeah, there are other parts of what makes music stereotypical and what makes it non-stereotypical, and there's a lot of different theories, and I'm not that well-versed in them. Um, anyone who is, please write in. But... Yeah, I think there was a bit of that, but also it was a bit... Mm-hmm. There's other stuff going on. My second one was to do with the acting. Okay. Um, I expected um, the acting to be very naturalistic, mm. because that was the method at the time. Definitely, uh, yes. The Soviets liked <laughs> Konstantin Stanislavski's way of acting. Um, at, well, way of teaching acting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So things w- would have been very naturalistic and very realistic, except that there would have been a lot of symbolism. True. And that's one expectation that was a definite tick. 
Yep, the symbolism is heavy within this film, as is the naturalist acting. I also had an expectation for you to find the role and the subservience which Nevena Koknova's character, Elisaveta, also called Lisa, in the film, played to her husband uh, to be a little bit jarring or to be a little bit contrasting to Western beliefs and the movement for freedom of women in the 1910s slash 1920s. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I did get a bit of that. One of my expectations as well, even before the film, was that because this was a Soviet era film with, with this kind of story and, and a hetero, hetero relationship in it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there was probably going to be a big strong man um, in yes. there. And a woman who was subservient, yes, but also managed to be both a kind of homemaker and happy with being a homemaker, but also something of a girl boss. Because mm. those are kind of what the Soviets liked to put in their films. Okay. Uh, they, they liked women to be happy with playing the subservient role, but also to be very strong, strong willed um, and able to put up a fight when things were, when injustice was happening, for instance. Mm. Um, and they liked their men to be. Uh, symbols of hard work and ability. Yes, well, actually, um, that plays into another expectation I had for you, namely what you would have thought of a comparison between the suffragette movement in the UK at the time of the First World War, or even a bit before the First World War, and how the Bulgarian slash Soviet homemaker and wife was presented in this film. Well, let's just say I don't think that Lisa would have been a part of the suffragists or suffragette movements. You don't think she would have been learning kung fu and martial arts to protect herself? <laughs> I don't think that the suffragettes learned kung they fu. They did. There are documents which say that the suffragettes learned self-defense and martial arts. Blimey. And used them on male policemen. That's a film series we've never seen. Mm. Forget kung fu panda. Try kung fu crinoline. Yeah. <laughs> um, we could write a script for that definitely yeah as I say I'm not sure she would have been involved with that had it existed Possibly I, I think not. It, uh, something like it must have existed in Bulgaria at the time must have um, but I don't think that she would have been one of them hmm. um, maybe secretively maybe she would have longed to be a part of them but the society at large would have <sighs> maybe ostracized her for it or shunned oh. her I mean I've never read the short story but I think the Elisabetta in the film is too wet for that <laughs> there's not enough of her she's barely a cardboard cutout <laughs> by modern standards by modern standards but but even by the standards of the 60s more generally i i think in bulgaria as well um she's a bit wet moving on to a different expectation yeah i mean when i first heard the title the peach thief um i was actually expecting a kind of bulgarian aladdin Disney's Aladdin, okay. you know, the, the okay. kind of <laughs> Aladdin figure stealing things and, and being like quite devilish and so, quite charming, which uh, the character is a bit. Um, Ivo is a bit. Ivo Obretenovic, who is the main love interest in the story, is a little bit devilishly handsome and a little bit of a ruffian. Um, but he's he's not an Aladdin figure. No, no, say. definitely no. He's as slippery as Aladdin, I'll give you that. Well... Not in the end. Um, I was expecting that. I don't know why. Um, there was something in my head. Oh, peaches are getting stolen. It's going to be a little bit kind of Aladdin-esque with the guy running away from some guards and it being... Kind with of... bread. 
it was a silly expectation, but it was there. One step ahead of the scarecrow. <laughs> one step. Well, it only <laughs> takes one step to get out of this prisoner of war camp. That's what I will say. <laughs> Speaking of the prisoner of war camp, I also noted down an expectation for you that you would be maybe amazed by the beautiful nature and the beautiful setting of the film, despite its black and white nature. It was definitely very pretty. And I think that it being black and white didn't take away from that. No, no, definitely um, not. I I knew it was going to be set in the past. Yeah, from pretty early on. Yeah, and I thought that it would it would do quite a lot of fitting in with Soviet propaganda. I thought it would show a lot of Bulgaria as being kind of Russian satellite state and um, definitely associated with Russia in in terms of history and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Ironically, it doesn't do that because it, was it set in the First World War when precisely. they were actually on opposite sides? Precisely, precisely. Um, and actually, funnily enough, the way that you mentioned propaganda, there are a few scenes which also include religion within the film. Yes, and there which are is very conventional. Definitely, films. definitely. Well, maybe after we've already shared our expectations for the film, we could move on to the next section of this podcast, namely. Describing the film in five words. Yes, yes, well, go ahead. So, my five-word phrase for The Peach Thief of 1964 is traditional wartime love story adaptation. I think that sums it up pretty darn well, and it really gives you everything you need to know about the film in a nutshell. It plays on conventions, it is taking place during the First World War, and at the heart of this film is a love story, which will probably meet with a tragic end. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. My five words are, I understand the landmark status. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are quite a few films that you watch where people say that they're very culturally significant, that they're um, super important, that they're landmark films. There's something about them that makes them super duper special. Yes, yes. Um, And then you watch them and you're like, Really? Okay. Mm. Not a landmark in my life. Um, mm. Or at least that's been an experience for me. But okay. Okay. in this case, I definitely understand it. I understand why it would have appealed at the time it was made. I understand why it still appeals. Um, and I understand why it could well be a cultural landmark that lasts well into the future for Bulgaria. I have seen, as part of the research for this podcast, multiple lists of the 10 best or 100 best Bulgarian films which usually place this film within the top 10. Mm. Well, I can understand that. So yeah, I think that that covers our five word descriptions. Quite brisk. Yes, quite brisk, but um, I think that we need to get into describing the plot. Yes. Um, for, I imagine, quite a few people listening who have probably never even heard of this film. But also for people who might need a bit of a refresher who have seen it before. Definitely. And we cater to both groups and we cater to all groups. Yes, indeed we do. So, I believe I can start on the short summary of the film by saying that Nevena Kokonova's character, Elisaveta, as I mentioned before, also called Lisa, is a stay-at-home wife married to a colonel who is seemingly tasked with protecting but also leading the town of Velikuturnovu in the year of 1918. As we already mentioned, the First World War is still happening, 
and the town of Veliko Trnovo, which is located probably best to say in central Bulgaria. Well, I, I don't actually know where it is, uh, but I do know that it was the old capital before yes. Sofia. Yes, definitely. It was one of the old capitals before eventually the third Bulgarian kingdom decided to place the capital city in Sofia, and it has remained there since then. Cool. Um, it was also the birthplace of uh, Stanov, the yes. short story writer. Exactly. Author. And I believe that also feeds into a lot of the film scenery and the film setting which, as I mentioned, I expected Sam to gush over a little bit. Well, it's it's definitely an advert for Veliko Tornovo. Um And for Bulgaria at large. <laughs> yes. Even if it depicts a bit of a somber period in history. Well, yeah, it, it definitely does. But it's it as Boris said, it's 1918, so it's at the end of the war. Um, Precisely. And although the main action only takes place within this city in Bulgaria, there are continuous references to the Western Front, of the war, where people from Western Europe, but also from the Balkan Peninsula, would have been fighting. Uh, Bulgaria, at this point in the war, in, in the late war, was on the side... Had they switched sides? I don't think so. I think we stayed at the side of the Germans and on the side of the Germans throughout. Okay, interesting. Okay. But there's, there's definite references to the Russian front mm. as well as to the Western front. True, yes. Um, so at, at various points there are people being talked about going to the Russian front mm. and things like that. Yeah, and within Velikotornovo, within all of this chaos, Lisa and her husband, the colonel, Mikhail, are trying to make a living for themselves. Mikhail, as a high-standing colonel in Velikotornovo, basically controls the city, it would seem, from what the film shows us and is also in charge of the prisoner of war camp, from which Ivo Obretenovic, who is a Serbian prisoner of war, frequently escapes. I believe that he was captured in one of the frontline battles, which was between the Allied forces and the Central Powers, and because Bulgaria was still fighting on the side of the Central Powers at this point, he got captured as a result of fighting and was just being held back in a prisoner of war camp. I mean, there were various theatres of war within the First World War. Mm. In in terms of British and indeed mostly German history, I imagine lots of it focuses on the Western Front. Yes. Um, but there were various theatres of war. There was the Eastern Front, the Russian Front mm. um, as well. But also there was the stuff going on in the Balkans. Oh, um, all the time. And uh, Balkan history is fascinating. The Ottoman Empire was also part of this, and there were various tensions already in the region. So I think that the fact that the prisoners are all of Serbian and other Balkan descents mm. apart from Bulgarian is interesting, because it makes it smaller scale. Yes, there's a mention of the fact that the First World War more generally is going on, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's within this very definite theatre of war in the Balkans and although there are references outside there are no characters apart from one from anywhere outside of it. Precisely, which makes the film even more interesting and an even better analysis or even an exploration of a less frequently talked about theatre of war as you said. Yeah. So as you mentioned Ivo Obretenovic is a prisoner of war we see Ivo 
infiltrating, let's say, the orchard of Mikhail and Lisa, trying to steal peaches from said orchard, but being caught red-handed by Lisa, who actually offers him a feast instead of punishing him for taking any peaches. So she offers him bread. Yeah, she offers him bread and cheese and peppers and salt and water. And that is how their love story sort of begins, through Lisa's compassion and evil's famined state? Famished he's, state. He's famished, yeah. He's, he's starving and he's, he's a prisoner of war who manages very easily to get out of this prisoner of war camp and go strolling around the town. He turns up and, and I think it's obvious that she's already disillusioned in her marriage with, with uh, Mikhail. Who, which of them makes the first move? It's quite interesting. Is, mm. is the first move him even going into the garden? Has he seen her before? Um, or is she the one who makes the first move by giving him some cheese and bread and peppers? I don't know. It's an interesting discussion. But Compassion it's... versus uh, desperation. Yeah, there's lots of potential reasons for it in terms of their psychology. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah. And a lot of it is silent. There is... I'd say that dialogue in this film is minimal compared to what it could be compared True. to how the story would be depicted now mm -hmm. there'll be a lot more dialogue so they they meet he gets some cheese he gets to keep the, the peaches he gets to keep the peaches and take them back although he does get into trouble for getting peaches and taking them back to the prisoner of war camp as they get confiscated and he gets put into solitary confinement yeah for I mean, some reason. It, I, it's a punishment. It's a type of punishment. This this prisoner of war camp is lax. Not that I'm saying that I wanted to see brutality against prisoners, but, you know, I was thinking, is this really how it was? Anyway, um, security is lax. <laughs> security is lax, and that allows evil to continuously escape the camp, continuously visit Lisa, and start a sort of an affair with her. Not a sort of it is an affair. Oh no, let's say. It, it's an affair. It's a full blown affair. It's a definite affair. Um, he he gets picked up on this by his friend hmm. within the camp, who is the only non Balkan character. True. In the film. True. Um, a French officer. Yes. I, I, he's a captain because um, Evil keeps referring to him as Mon Capitan, hmm. and they do quite a lot of speaking in French. A lot of the dialogue in this film is therefore French. <laughs> But they have a conversation about women and love and stuff like that. And, of course, being French, he knows all about love. Classic stereotypical heteronormative. Mm. Yeah. And that he was not in the original story, was he? No. This character, this French Capitan, was not in the original story by Stanif. So he was an invention of the directors and of the screenwriters. Mm. And I think he fulfills his role very well to maybe give some extra motivation to evil. I would agree. And... Against the backdrop of this love story, which continues to grow, we get the continuous reminder of the horrific nature of war and how detrimental and destructive it is to all human lives. Not just those that are lost during actions on any fronts, but also referring to the maybe survivor's guilt that some survivors may have, the damage which they incur both physically, spiritually, mentally, as well as the damage done to all of the people left behind to mourn the dead. And the, the film kind of reaches a fever pitch when there's a... It reaches something of a climax when there's a protest mm -hmm. from a lot of the 
military personnel. Yeah, they they have a protest and they say we don't want to fight anymore. Mm-hmm. And then there are various officers who say no, you've got to you've got to keep on fighting for the honor of Bulgaria and yeah and stuff like that. And there isn't that much bloodshed, but there is a little. Well, that and a couple of other things like enemy troops closing in means yeah. that the prisoners of war have to be moved uh, to another city as they're leaving. <laughs> Evil decides to escape this throng of prisoners of war and flee back to Lisa and the orchard. But his attempts at a happy life with her are cut short by short. the lieutenant, who his job has been to protect the orchard. And he has been fine with letting Evil just come in up to this point. But that's not a thing altogether. Basically, this lieutenant who has been residing in the orchard from the start of the film, more or less, although we haven't seen him do so. Well, after the first time Evil sneaks in and steals some peaches, True. Mikhail gets very angry at seeing a lot of the peaches gone. Yes. And he says to this guy, you must prevent anything from being stolen. I want you out here protecting my peaches. (laughs) You You are better than a scarecrow. (laughs) I want you out here protecting my peaches all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what he does. That's what he does. In the end. Well, in yeah, <laughs> good point. In the end, I mean, there's a lot. There's there's months that go by where evil has clearly been sneaking in somehow. Mm. Um, sometimes it, we see him be let in through the door, but in keeping with Soviet montage theory, a lot of this happens in montage. So a lot of mm-hmm. clips, obviously, to show the passage of time, a lot of clips show. Oh, now it's raining, so it's a different month. Oh, now a new thing, a new thing is happening, and. The feeling, even though it's a short film, is that this covers quite a long space of time. So oh, this definitely. lieutenant is clearly not doing his job very well because he must he must have seen evil before. And yet, right at the end of the film, partly because plot needs it to be the case, he gets shot. Yep. Oh no, not the lieutenant. Evil, evil gets shot. Gets shot by the lieutenant and dies in the hands of Lisa. Or no, not even in the hands of Lisa. He dies before she gets to him. And the film ends on this fade to black moment where the audience is just thinking to themselves. What will happen to Lisa now after this great forbidden love and her staying with the Colonel? Well, it ends on a f- it ends on a fade to black on them, but the last shot of the film is actually on the line of soldiers mm-hmm. marching away to the new city, and and the last main character that we see is the French dude looking back, mm. being like, oh, "I hope my friend's all right." So yes, that's the plot of the film. Um, in a shortened fashion. <laughs> With some comments peppered in there. Yes. This might be a good moment for us to make ourselves a cup of tea mm. and for you potentially to steal some peaches from your next door neighbour's peach orchard, which everyone has. Um, or grab yourselves a bottle of cider, which carries the same name. The Peach Thief is also the name of a cider in Bulgaria. There is a cider brand which has a fox on the label. Which I think I've also seen in the UK, but I don't remember its name in the UK. Oh, cool. Well, I was just trying to make a a silly, campy little um, go-have-a-break-now moment. But, okay, you can take that to the bank, listener, and you will hear us in a few minutes. Welcome back. Uh, Yes, welcome back indeed. Just to clarify, if you would like to find the cider that in Bulgaria is called the Peach Thief. Indeed. Um, It's called the Orchard Thief Mm. in the UK. Ah, yes. Yes, there we go. The main thing you should be on the lookout for is a fox on the label. 
The fox may have a sort of a thief's mask on its face, but yeah, just look out for a running fox on the label. Or, if you can't be bothered to go searching through the supermarkets for it uh, without knowing exactly what it will look like... Order it online. Order it online, or we can put a picture of the label up on our Instagram. Absolutely. So, yes, we have gone through the film's plot. It's not the most gigantic plot in the world. There's, There's not that much going on, but it's still affecting... Um, yes. And it, there's some powerful messaging that could be said to be there. Exactly. And I believe that is a great way of going into talking about why this film was a big critical success for Bulgarian filmmakers and was even a success outside of Bulgaria within the wider international film community. Mm-hmm. So I think we mentioned this at the start, but sources are a little bit sparse for this film. And that affects what kind of information we can get into, hence why we're not actually able to really tell you what the box office success of the film was or how many audience members actually saw the film. But it did get a release um, a kind of across the Soviet satellite states. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And even from early on, it's, it's selected as being a prime example of quality Bulgarian filmmaking. Absolutely. It even went on to be presented at international festivals, such as the Venice Film Festival in 1965, and was even submitted to various national festivals within Bulgaria in the same year, winning three awards from the Varna Film Festival for Best Female Actor, Best Male Actor, and the Special Jury Award. And I also believe that recently, the film itself was featured as a part of the Thessaloniki Film Festival in 2017, where it, The Peach Thief, along with some other major Bulgarian films, were shown to audience members. So in a way that shows the longevity and the long-lasting nature of this film being a cultural landmark within Bulgarian cinema, but also overcoming those geographical differences and borders to actually make an impact on international film stages. Furthermore, This film has also been shown multiple times at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Mm. There are actual historical evidences and documents which depict times and years and dates of this film being shown in New York City, not just in the 1960s, but also in the 1980s and 90s. I think that part of the reason why it's been shown in places like that and in various festivals and continues to have a presence not only in Bulgaria but also internationally is because, as I said before, it's a prime example of Soviet montage theory. Mm. Um, But Soviet montage theory applied to a not particularly political or scientific film. True. Uh, mm-hmm. What I mean by scientific is it goes a little bit into the reasons behind Soviet montage theory, but montage is the French word for editing mm-hmm. or assembly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, montage is, has been, been a film technique from very early on. As soon as there were films with multiple scenes and multiple shots, how they were stitched together became mm. very important. And montage became one of the main ways that it could be done. Scenes being shown very quickly on top of each other. Okay. okay. And this being done not only to convey changes of place and time, um, but also to, in some ways, affect audiences emotionally. It's, it's actually used quite a lot of, in romantic films. If you have oh, a right. lot of scenes of the same two people meeting again and again and again, 
then you get the sense that the relationship is happening over a long period of time, but also that they're kind of they're carried along in in the rush of the relationship that they're very excited about it that kind of thing if if scenes are stitched together in a fast way lots of quick transitions then that means that the action's going quickly and we're carried along with it if things are stitched together more slowly then there's a different feeling conveyed okay i'm just trying to put this into perspective with some films that i've seen and some conventions which i've noticed in the films that i've watched but let's maybe take as an example the traditional makeover montage of romantic films from the 1980s and 1990s. So I'm thinking Pretty Woman, or even the montages in films such as The Breakfast Club, let's say. Yeah. How do those play into this tradition of montage, would you say? Well, they they play in pretty well to the way that montage and scene transitions in film have been understood from a Western perspective. Mm -hmm. um, however, uh, within what we're talking about, the kind of films that, that we're focusing on today, we're talking about Soviet montage theory. Okay, yes. Um, the Soviets didn't care as much about emotion mm. in their Within filmmaking. filmmaking. They cared more about the technical ability. They cared more mm. about mm -hmm. the form and the making of film also making meaning. So people like Eisenstein, who directed Battleship Potemkin, Montage, according to people like Eisenstein, was described as the nerve of cinema. You can create all kinds of different effects, um, not only on the audience, but on how the film it appears to be okay. through how you use montage. It, it becomes a film language in and of itself. You basically collide independent shots together. Things that don't necessarily follow in the same theme mm -hmm. are kind of crashed together. Okay, okay. Um, creating a feeling for the audience that can be quite jarring, mm. but also conveys quite a lot of meaning. It's very symbolic. Mm -hmm. Early filmmaking techniques would often put several different shots into the same frame. This film is an example of montage within the frame. It's a Soviet term, but I think that it means that the montage was all happening so that the scene seemed to follow a thematic link and seemed to follow one after another in terms of the time that they were they were showing okay but okay. there's a little bit of confusion because it's it's much more symbolic she doesn't seem to have changed clothes and yet sometimes she has so some some scenes are happening much closer together than others in terms of the the sequences which are done through montage particularly i'm thinking about the ones that show the development of their relationship true yes but it's not done in necessarily a logical way, mm. if that makes sense. So it's a cutting together, pasting together, and bringing together of different scenes in an order which formally would make sense, even in the absence of speech? Well, yes, and that connects to the fact that there's less than usual dialogue okay I mean, I'm, I'm, within this film within this film, but also within Soviet montage theory more generally. It's very much a show don't tell uh, show don't speak hmm. um, way of making a film in my opinion it does a lot of the work that dialogue could do for Lisa Interesting. a lot of her feeling a lot of her emotion is conveyed by the way that the scenes that she is in definitely. are edited she is the main character of absolutely the film, i would argue but she's definitely not the main character in terms of dialogue and yet it conveys her emotional journey she is the main character around whom the whole plot revolves 
we do have a lot of characters who ask actively after Lisa, so Kokonova's character, within the film. We don't start with her, interestingly. We start with Mikhail, and we're shown him giving a little bit of training to his troops. This is a guy who walks with a limp, with a cane, but some of the first shots that we see are him being driven in and giving a kind of drill of fighting with a rifle and bayonet to some troops. I think that also goes to show the importance of the military and this sort of manly stature and the very heteronormative depiction of the male in society. The power, the strength related to the army societal class. I would agree. I also think that it serves to introduce by way of comparison evil. Even mm. though he's introduced much later, we've got a picture of Mikhail. Yes. And we understand him quite well. Yes. By the time that we, even by the time we meet Lisa, mm. but definitely by the time we meet evil, we can see immediately the comparisons between Mikhail and evil. And that leads us to do what she is inevitably going to have to do, compare them in her mind and realise that evil represents so much more of what she wants. Exactly. So the cast and the director of The Peach Thief were perfectly chosen and they managed to convey these messages as well as the message of war is horrible, war is atrocious, everything goes to shit when war is happening pretty darn well on the screen. I would agree, I would agree. And I think that Vuloradev, who is the director, yes. does a really good job of making a subtle mm -hmm. film. As subtle as a Soviet-era film can be. I think that there's very clearly a central message of war is bad, especially colonialist, imperialist war. Yes, um, yes. And, and peace is what we all strive for. But he gets in quite a lot of subtle messaging through the symbolism, through his use of montage, through his use, I would say, also of Kokonova and uh, how, she, how she appears. Absolutely. You know, her visual presence is enough to convey a heck of a lot of messaging. Oh, totally. And this was not the only film um, that he's quite well known for. Um, no, definitely not. I believe Voloradev also worked on films such as Tsar and General and also Doomed Souls, known in Bulgarian as Osadini Dushi, which is again another book-based film. But all of these came after Peach Thief. In Peach Thief, Voloradev introduces his filmmaking craft of using montage and then perfects it throughout his career. Yes, it is the first major film that he's listed as having directed. Um, and a heck of a debut in terms of the effect on Bulgarian culture. But I, I guess some people strike gold right from the start. By casting Kokanova, he really excelled in, in finding a leading lady who would connect with the audience. But I think that he did the same with the actor that he chose for Evil, who is an actor called Rade Markovic. Indeed, and this collaboration between the Bulgarian Kokanova and the Yugoslavian Markovic was very well documented as being a successful cinematic relationship and Markovic's own history within Yugoslavia really helped cement him before coming onto the role of evil within The Peach Thief and 
both him and Kokonuva really managed to convey with very few words and very limited dialogue the message of these war-torn lovers. A lot of the film is conveyed in terms of the way that they look at each other. Long lingering looks and a lot's conveyed in their facial expressions and that's part of the way that you see how far along in the relationship you are by the way that they're looking at each other. So yes, the actions really do depict this internal dilemma and internal struggle that both of them are going through against the background of not just the war, but also Mikhail's unwavering devotion to the army and to the military mission. Yeah, it's a very cold marriage and that's conveyed very well. Um, in the case of Nevena Kokanova, she's called the first lady of Bulgarian cinema? Indeed, yes. Because of her talent and because of the multiple films she was in, always managing to just steal the show, I say, steal the limelight. I think I wrote down in my notes the way she looks in The Peach Thief, I would compare it to Priscilla Presley and Scylla Black. Young Scylla Black. Okay. Young Scylla Black, okay. <laughs> but more recently, I was thinking about this, that I actually believe I would more so compare her to someone like Rita Hayworth in terms of the facial structure, in terms of the facial beauty, which just so emanates from mm. her. Um, there will be multiple pictures of her going up on her Instagram, don't worry. Yes. Thank you, social media. You can look forward to that. And she... she broke through into other markets, is it true mm. to say that as uh -huh. well? She also had starring roles in international productions, such as a joint Bulgarian-Italian-Yugoslavian film production of The Life of Galileo Galilei, based on the Brechtian play of the same name, as well as playing the role of Lucrezia Borgia in a film version of the Borgia family history. We've been talking about the cast of the film, but uh, let's go on to our potential replacements or alternatives for the cast of the film if it were to be remade now in various contexts with people who our audience might have heard of or might not have heard of, but yes. Both are fine. Both are very welcome. Very similar to how we recast El Labirinto del Fauno within our last episode, or Pan's Labyrinth, we decided to focus on a Bulgarian language-speaking cast, which may be more well-known than usual, some of them, others may be completely unknown to a Western audience, but we do still believe that they deserve wider recognition and can portray these characters very, very successfully. So, we're going to be focusing on the roles of Elisaveta, or Lisa, Ivo, Mikhail, the colonel, and the French prisoner of war, who is never given any name within the actual film. For the starring role of Lisa, I thought a great female actor to bridge the gap between East and West in this case, so to speak, would be Maria Bakalova. Maria Bakalova was first welcomed to the wider Western scene, I want to say, during the COVID period, yes, as part of the Borat sequel, having a major starring role in that film, and then going on to also voice a character in the latest Guardians of the Galaxy film. So I believe that her beauty, her youth as well, will be wonderful to depict the story of Elisaveta and Evil. Yeah, she's, she's definitely also quite well known um, on the international stage. Mm. And I think she's definitely beautiful enough to carry that role mm. uh, that Kokanova made her own originally. So, 
as we mentioned, Maria Bakalova as Elisaveta, I think it's only fair to then mention who I would suggest to play Evil. And I recently come across this actor whilst being on several different Netflix binges, as we usually are in our day-to-day -day lives. But the actor Julian Kostov is a relatively young actor who's only about 34. And I think that would be a very well-suited age for someone in the military, even someone still fighting on the front lines. Mm -hmm. And he has been involved in multiple Western series, such as A Discovery of Witches, Berlin Station, and Shadow and Bone. He's also been in the Toxic Avenger film, and he's also voiced um, characters in Call of Duty games. And he also has starred in some Bulgarian productions, most recently in Triumph or Triumph. So yeah, I believe trying to capture that same sort of youthful essence of the two lovers would be essential. And then I would want to cast another familiar face to the Western public, a familiar face which may have done a little bit of acting since last being shown on the silver screen, a little known person by the name of Stanislav Janewski. Okay. Who, um, you know, if anyone has watched Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, they may remember his very, very, very limited lines. <laughs> uh, which would quite possibly make him an ideal Colonel Mikhail in this scenario. For, for anyone who, who isn't quite sure of who... Stanislav Janewski played in Harry Potter Goblet of Fire. Could you clear that up for them? Yes, indeed. Stanislav Janewski played the role of Viktor Krum. Krum, 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 Krum. Is there any bread? <laughs> <laughs> bad jokes at re-encounters. Um, yes. Well, uh, dad jokes. Whether or not they're bad will leave up to the audience. But, but yes, Stanislav Janewski played the role of Viktor Krum in the film version of Krum, Krum. Goblet of Fire. And since then, he has definitely buffed up, got B more tattoos. B buffed up more? Buffed up, well, yes. Has he? Yes, definitely. Buff and Colonel. <laughs> buff Colonel. And then, finally, for the role of the sort of stringy, lanky French prisoner of war, I went with someone who, I dare say, some of my references are dated because of the access I've had to Bulgarian media over the years. I blame immigration. My take for the French prisoner of war would be the actor Alexander Sanu, who is in Bulgaria most well known for the role of Kosama, or quite literally the hare, translated into English, from the TV series Undercover. And I believe that the slyness of that character, but also the quick wittedness of that character, combined with the charm and charisma which Sano managed to convey with that character would play really well to the strength of the French prisoner of war, namely to depict how this person could have survived through a conflict. And um, yeah, I believe we will be putting out pictures of these suggested actors. I think we will. I think that's, later that's a wise decision. Mm. Um, now, similar to what happened with El Labyrinto del Fauno, um, I'm going to slightly change the location of the Peach Thief. Mm. Um, 
in terms of what I'm doing with my cast. Mm. Um, I was thinking about conflicts that would work. I am denied about setting it in either Britain or Germany at the same time, mm-hmm. um, or during the Second World War. But then I kind of rethought about it and thought, actually, we've spoken quite a lot about the 20th century mm-hmm. and quite a lot about um, those particular wars. So I thought about moving it over across the pond Ooh. Uh, to a state well known for its peaches. Hmm. Georgia. Ah, indeed. During the American Civil War. Okay, okay. That is a bold choice, but I can definitely see it work. Well, the the reason why is I wanted to come up with a suitable replacement mm. role for the French character. Okay. Um, And in both the First World War and the Second World War, the French were the allies of the UK. True, yes. Um, so... You, in either scenario, it would be difficult to make it work. Anyway, hmm. I decided to go for American Civil War um, because I thought it would be fun. Um, and it's a love story set during the American Civil War. Yeah, and, you know, Peach, the, it, it's a very basic story. The, uh, the same story can happen within the context of the American Civil War, definitely. definitely. Absolutely. You recast the four parts. I'm going to do the same four parts. Please do. Um, and for the stand-in part for Lisa, mm-hmm. um, or Elizabeth, as she would probably be known in an English version, yeah, um, I've gone for Jennifer Lawrence. Okay. Um, Jennifer Lawrence is a great actress. Indeed. Um, and she's ha- she has a proven record of films. Her career's... Uh, she hasn't done anything too big lately, from my knowledge. Even in some of the trashiest films that she's been in, mm. I think she's been able to convey um, strong emotion. She's been cast in a lot of roles that are quite sad looking. Katniss being the obvious example. Yes, yes. Um, and she was also in Silver Linings Playbook. But she's she's played a multitude of different roles. Indeed. Um, but I think that this could be her kind of slightly sad looking beauty would fit well with the Lisa part she's proven throughout her career to be as affecting when silent as she is when she's speaking um, in her roles which is something that not many actors can say they they're genuinely able to do and her beauty is undeniable her beauty facially complements her acting capabilities and she's also from a southern state she's not from georgia hmm. she's from kentucky okay. uh, originally but she um I'm, I'm sure that she would be able to pull off a georgian accent Mm-hmm. Um, alongside her, playing her love interest, the stand-in for evil. I'm not exactly sure what that would be in English language. Let's go for something general like be, Robert. Well, Ivan is is John, so would it be yeah. John? Okay, could be John. Yeah. Well, let's just say John. Um, I would go for Sebastian Stan. Um, Interesting choice. Yeah, he's he's slightly older than Lawrence, but I think That's that fine. that also fits with the way that it is in the uh, Bulgarian original. So Sebastian Stan is best known for playing Bucky slash the Winter Soldier in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Indeed. Um, he's also been recently in the Hulu series Pam and Tommy as Tommy Lee. Oh, okay. Um, he has... He has quite a manic energy um, <laughs> as a performer, but he's also he he gets very into parts. There is a little bit of the rogue aspect there, yeah. Um, and I think that Sebastian Stan would be able to take that and run with it 
um he'd be very flirty um but he would also fit well with jennifer lawrence's slightly more solitary and quite calm seemingly calm performance Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's the way i'm seeing it i can definitely see that dynamic and i'm actually very interested in you saying that ivu has a bit of a devilish energy behind him and to him and i do agree with that like that sort of trickster energy (laughs) is just a really good contrast to the very strict and very structured role of Mikhail as the colonel so i do really really understand and see where you're coming from with those comparisons and those thoughts we come to the colonel um Hoo-hoo. elizabeth's husband uh, Mikhail, of course is relatively easy to translate to english michael, michael. i would go get on michael i would go with good wrong. old ben affleck um, who, as we well know, has an affinity for uh, women named Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> True. Ben Affleck generally has an air similar to Jennifer Lawrence of... He's, he's got one of those faces that looks a little bit sad dog. I, I think that he would play a really cool Mikhail, mm. Michael, um, because he, he's, he's an attractive man. He's a cool dad. <laughs> I think that Jennifer Lawrence, you can see why they would have got married. Mm -hmm. But you can see also how easily the marriage has kind of fallen to disillusionment and sadness. And he'd he'd play this kind of southern colonel um, who's very duty-bound to the the war, to the cause, uh, to the confederacy, etc. And she listens to him say all of this stuff about the war and doesn't really care. Mm -hmm. Um, She's just kind of going through life as a kind of doll for him. Um, very kind of Victorian angel of the house kind of thing, and this would this would actually take quite a lot of the Victoriana, which is present in the original, mm. to an era where, although it's not in the UK, it's not in England, but it, it's still relevant still because the similar stuff was going on in indeed, America at the indeed. time. Um, but she, I, th- I think that that would really work as a dynamic. Um, ben Affleck is by now something of a legend mm-hmm. um, in terms of his film career he's been in so many films and he's directed a fair few as well he is world famous um, and he would bring a star power to the film even not that more the others so. wouldn't even more um, so but uh, yeah I mean this is a cast that would be very expensive but I think yeah. that it could it could sell well and he definitely sell the relationship well um, It'll be a very box standard love story for him to jump onto, but I believe that it is within his acting capabilities. Yeah, that is if he wasn't too annoyed that he wasn't playing the male lead, but hey ho. Um, as the final recast, um, I wanted to recast the what originally is the French captain. Okay. Who is yes. the uh, friend, probably best friend of evil. In that these, we see in the film. In these current circumstances, um, yes. The uh, setting of the American Civil War would allow... For, I'm just trying to think of a character who would be at least slightly othered mm. within that context, and that leads you, of course, onto a black yes. actor. The idea would be that Sebastian Stan would be playing a Union, a Northern American okay. soldier. Yes. Um, and uh, the actor who I've chosen for the French captain would be Daniel Kaluuya. Ah. Um playing a, a, a soldier a, 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 soldier, a black soldier in the Union Army who's also been captured mm-hmm. I think there would be a different dynamic in that because uh, the, the Frenchman in the original isn't dehumanised mm-hmm. but he is othered because Indeed. a lot of the prisoners of war within the camp 
are definitely of Serbian background. They have yeah. a lot connecting them. They sing songs connecting them. They, yes. ha- they have a national identity that unites them. Definitely. The Frenchman is slightly othered because he comes from a different background and, and he, there's other stuff going on. Um, I think that it's not the same at all and there would be a different dynamic and perhaps it would be a good way of coming getting across some of the, the that particular history um, of the Civil War. Um, but I think that Daniel Kaluuya would... He's got one of these um, auras as a performer mm. where he's got quite a kind of mischievous spark. appeal. He's got, he's got that kind of spark. He is a British actor, but he's very, very famous now in the American context, mainly due to uh, Get Out. Yes. Um, and his work with Jordan Peele. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that he would really again this is a very expensive cast in terms of the star power that's on show here but I think he would really work I think that his trickster energy would work really well with Sebastian Stan's kind of more manic jokester energy they would play really well off of one another perhaps a note that if I was directing the remake that I would give to all of the actors is make it big. Like it, yeah. it, I would actually say to them, you don't actually have to be as naturalistic as you might think you do. Of hmm. course, for Affleck, I think that would be difficult because I think he, he, and indeed Jennifer Lawrence have flirted a lot with oh, naturalistic, yeah. realistic acting. Um, but I think that they might enjoy it. A, a love story being created in a kind of heightened fashion might be fun. Might be fun. I think I think that there's a lot that could be done here. It is a story that could be really melodramatic oh yeah um thankfully it's not not in this case in the original it's not either no so yeah i'm quite proud of those recasts oh definitely i think they're good well done us yeah and we will definitely include (laughs) that was a high five for anyone who didn't hear it (laughs) (laughs) indeed um and we'll definitely be putting up some pictures of those imagined casts later up on our social media yes we will so um you said that you saw this film we have kind of covered this in the introduction but you said that you saw this film uh while you were at school indeed and i believe the main focus of the analysis when i saw this film whilst at school was just the love story between lisa and evil we didn't really go too much into the political or historical backgrounds of the film slash the story and i believe that upon rewatching the film now i got a bigger appreciation for the depictions of the atrocities of war and how much such events of historical proportions really affect every single person within society and really this story a bit similar to how in the last episode we mentioned that El Labirinto del Fauno could present a little pocket of history a little individual story of the fight against Franco and the inevitable loss against the bigger, wider power of Franco's fascist regime during World War II and a little bit before that. In the Peach Thief's case, we can see the story of Lisa and Evil as a single pocket instance of multiple histories which could have occurred, maybe did occur during the First World War and have probably occurred since then have occurred before then in various other conflicts. Yeah, it's 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 an it's a nice little kind of um, micro story uh, in mm. in a much larger context. You're you're quite right. S- stories like this have happened. True. And could have happened and will happen um, in all kind of contexts. 
And I believe this is the beauty of art, that it manages to encapsulate something which is so universally human and so universally recognizable that we can imagine it happening not just in the setting in which it is presented, but also in various other circumstances. Hmm. I mean, you said earlier that this film and this story took on a similar, perhaps not not as strong as it is in the UK, but it took on a similar cultural power yes. um, as things like Shakespeare. You know, it's, it's a mm. cultural artifact that they're proud of um, and that has managed to survive through the, the collapse of, of the Soviet sphere of influence and the socialist regime in Bulgaria. Precisely. Um, so, and I, as I said earlier, I can understand why. Partly because it is quite a simple film uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the stuff that it conveys. The plot. And it, it has a relatively universal understanding, understandable message. It's not overtly pro-Soviet, pro-state um, socialism. It's, it's, <laughs> it's pro-peace. Yeah. It's anti-war. It's not a propaganda film. No, no. Um, it's a genuinely well-made film, um, and I similar think... to a well-made play. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think there's a lot of crossover there. It's kind of obvious why I haven't seen this film. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then again, I am someone who has gone out and watched a lot of films, not only English language films, but films that are particularly culturally significant from other cultures and, mm-hmm. and with other languages. I am sure that if I'd been trying, mm. um, I could have watched it uh, maybe at a festival, maybe in an educational setting in the UK. It's, mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. Especially now, it's not impossible to go out there and find films from past eras yeah. in, that are not in the English language um, and create your own canon. Definitely. Um, so you know, if if things have been slightly different, I could have I could have found myself watching it um, before. I didn't, but I'm glad that I was able to watch it for the first time with someone mm-hmm. who uh, kind of gets the cultural significance of it, because you know I wouldn't have known it was a landmark film mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Bulgaria without mm. you telling me. And without the helpful support of Gledam.bg and their English subtitles for this Bulgarian film. Really working for that sponsorship. Gotta love it. So, so hard. Actually, I'm working so hard that I believe I do need to clock in for another break. We're working our asses off for Gledam, so we need to get some refreshments. Indeed. um, And wet our whistles, as it were, um, so that we can carry on uh, doing this long-form advert for them. Indeed. So don't go anywhere unless you, for some reason, don't want to hear about our extensive thoughts on the film. But why would you miss out on those? И добре дошли отново след кратката пауза. Тук сме отново с Сам. Здравей, Сам! Hi! И ще говорим отново за Крадецът на праскови. And now, welcome back to our regularly scheduled English podcast. Or rather, English-speaking podcast. You we'll, be the judges we'll of that. We'll go with whatever version we like. Yes, yes, welcome back. Um, we are very happy to uh, still be talking about The Peach Thief. Indeed. Um, a film from 1964. But yes, let, let's give a few more thoughts on the film itself. Um, Gladly. Um, I think we can start with one of my thoughts on the film, which is actually based around the 
beginning sequence of the film, mm-hmm. which shows a funeral procession yes. for soldiers who have seemingly, or at least their corpses have seemingly come back from the First World War. Mm. And I found it a very interesting presentation of a religious procession, particularly because the Peach Thief was filmed as, and you said, in 1964 at you know, one of the very high periods of Bulgarian socialist control and the control of the state over religion and other aspects of societal life. So seeing religion being portrayed like that on screen, I found very surprising. I I don't know. I, I think that it is true to say that it was a bit of a surprise when watching it to see how big of a part religion played in aspects of this film. Some of the most beautiful shots including those establishing ones of the funeral, which are a very clever way of Mm. making sure that we know exactly when the film is set. (laughs) Um, Despite the fact that that kind of gets confused by some of the montage kind of time-passing sequences later on in the film. You know, we're we're able to realise pretty quickly that this is at some point in 1918, because the date is written on some of the caskets at the start. Some of the most beautiful shots of the film are those inside the church. Yes, um, absolutely. uh, Elisabetta is there for a service mm-hmm. um, and she is obviously going through a lot of difficulty um, almost trying to confess to God her sins of, of, of cheating on her husband. She's um, having an internal dilemma moment. Yes, she is. And and her clothes reflect that, especially in church. But I, Hello, black clothes. <laughs> well, she also the black clothes are there to um, offer beautiful contrast mm. uh, with Kokonova's... Um, gorgeous face and and the skin that's showing let's put it yeah. that way um yeah she looks great it it is a surprise but when you think about it it isn't that much of a surprise because <laughs> there's a film set in the past okay and the soviets yes they they did a lot of stuff sweeping the past under the rug but they didn't entirely erase it and they may not have enjoyed religion hmm. but think about it from the perspective of what do you do to show moral dilemma you can do lots of montage things which this film which does. they do um, but also, oh, she goes to church. Easy. Done. Mm. There she is. They want to show her go through these silent moral dilemmas and, oh, oh God, what have I done? And all of this right up until the end. Or maybe they're even saving up her dialogue for when she's talking to evil because they're talking across different languages. Yes, Serbian and Bulgarian do still belong to the Slavic language of families and especially Southeastern Slavic languages that are very similar. However, the language which she uses with evil can be seen as a bit different to the language which she uses with Mikhail. I guess in that way, you can also see the use of language as another tool to reinforce that moral dilemma. Yes, together possibly. with religion. I mean, my, my main point here would be the filmmakers, Radev, etc., they are making her the center point of the story emotionally. Yes. But she doesn't have that much to say Mm -hmm. because they focus on showing it. Contrasting her to what I've also put down as a note, namely hardline, stern, and strict military personnel. Are they all that strict? Hmm. This would be a question because, yes, Mikhail is. He's strict, he's depressed, he's lost a lot of faith, but he remains devoted to the cause and, and to honour. He's he's very humdrum, he's very hmm. simple. And even in the moments where he is a threat, he's not that much of a threat. I no. mean, at the moment where he tells his lieutenant, who ends up shooting evil at the very end, 
to to shoot at anyone who enters, which only happens once. Hey. Um, even when he's saying that, yes, he's angry about the peaches, but he finds a moment of levity because he sees the bell that gets rung every, every time mm-hmm. the it's the good. barbed wire fence gets moved. And he starts dinging the bell. Um, I mean, this isn't a villain. I don't think the officers are that straight. See Evo's ability to get out of the camp as easily as he does. Hmm. They play games. Yes, they put their, their prisoners in solitary confinement. But there's a, there's a sense of camaraderie. And when the fight happens between what I would call the soldiers of the lower orders... Okay, yes. ...and the officers, the officers all talk about, oh, yes, it's a hard war, but we've got to fight for the honour of the country. Mm. And all the, 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 the soldiers who don't want to keep on fighting, they say, we're hungry, we're tired, we're starving, etc., etc. This is what war has done to us. It's, it's one of those films where there isn't really a villain. Except for war, just the general yeah. feeling of war. Yes, yes. And what war does to society, how it maybe turns a society into a topsy-turvy state where those of a higher class, namely the soldiers, can revolt against an established order. And then you have the presentation of the lower order or the lower social classes being slightly powerless to change their fate. By doing what they do, Lisa and Evil try to escape the confines of being pawns in somebody else's game. Mm -hmm. They do do their own form of escape. Mm -hmm. But in Mm -hmm. the end, that kind of leads to Evil's death. It's it's kind of like you play with fire, you've got to expect to get burned. Um, Exactly. You remain hungry. You may get treated to some Balkan hospitality with um, bread, cheese, egg, water, pepper. But in the end, your heart will bleed. Quite literally. (laughs) And yes, that was a very, very weird segue to another note I had regarding what Lisa delivers to Evil the first time they meet after he tries to steal peaches from the orchard. She decides to take him in for a bit and give him some hospitality in the form of cold meze meals, yes. And this is actually another opportunity for us to look at the outfits that Nevena Kokunova wears as Lisa and how at the beginning of the film, she is very much in her teacher, angelic era with a lot of lace or white, a lot of long skirts, I dare say the color palette of Lisa at the beginning of the film is lighter and warmer than it is at the end of the film. Well, to be honest, I didn't notice that much of a change. Um, Mm. I I think that the costume people have done a very good job, except with the hair, Hmm. um, in recreating a kind of Edwardian look. Okay. Um, (coughs) Sex means typhoid means consumption. Oh, yeah, the typhoid bit. When he just comes (laughs) in and says, oh, I may have typhoid. And you're like, oh, is that how the film's going to be? He's going to die of typhoid. No, he doesn't have it anymore. Never mentioned again. And you're like, oh, okay. It's part of the montage bit. Time is passing. I might have typhoid. Do you have typhoid? Uh, Forgot about it. No. I I understand the method of filmmaking, but I think that there are certain connecting points that it would be nice if we didn't lose. Mm, Um, Indeed. And, you know, maybe one way of solving that would be to give... Um, Kokonova a little more dialogue. I mean, this this is to date the oldest film that we're covering. We are going to go older. Oh, of course we are, but I think an interesting comparison would be to look at a film from around the same time in from uh, Hollywood or from, from Britain. I like a note that you've made here. Playing with buttons equals sex. Buttons banter equals sex. Conflicting emotions equals sex. 
puppet cuddles equals sex. <laughs> so I think this goes back to the montage bit you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to do a lot of work insinuating that sexual activity is going on because they can't show anything at all that is um, risque. There is no mention and there is no sign of Lisa ever being pregnant. It's, it's okay that we don't have to assume that she gets pregnant. Uh, hmm. I mean, I don't know if there's any reference to, made to it in the original short story. I think the possibility of her being pregnant is toyed around with, but it's not given too much credibility. Sometimes. Well, it could be something that's left open-ended at the end of the film. Yeah. He's dead. Hmm. She realises that she gets pregnant. And then Mikhail's like, oh, wait, but we didn't have sex because we haven't touched each other in years. What? And you How don't are you have... pregnant? And you don't have typhoid? What? <laughs> oh, then he gets typhoid and dies and she's left penniless and also dies. Hmm. Trad- no, 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 no. <laughs> that would be too much like Les Miserables. Talking as we were about plot, talking about the end of the story, mm-hmm. um, does it wrap it up in a nice bow? No. But it's it's a a good ending in terms of like bringing a stop to the story at the point where it stops. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that that connects to what you were saying about the whole well-made play thing. Mm. You know, it's very neat. You know from the moment that the lieutenant is kind of told to look after the orchard and shoot anyone who gets close that probably Evil's going to die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know that Lisa's going to fall in love with him. Yes. Kind of from the moment that, that they see each other. It's all... There's a lot of kind of romantic film tropes in there. I believe that having a plot which is kind of easier to follow than not and it's more expected and goes down a familiar route allows for a lot of filmmakers to experiment just how we've seen with the montage techniques in this film um and that's why i believe using the well-made play as a reference point makes a lot of sense for this film simply because it does follow a traditional five-act structure with a tragic ending as well. The, like, the, the main point is, yes, okay, the, the love story is happening and the hopes get dashed there. But more more widely, the film is about if you're disillusioned with a war that seemingly has no point, why are you fighting it? Hmm. Then stop. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's kind of suggesting, yes, the, 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 the lower down soldiers in terms of rank are right, but your whole thing about honour should be celebrated. Yeah. But what's honourable about carrying on with something that you've already lost? Hmm. Because it's it's kind of made clear that they're losing, and badly. Yeah. I mean, at the end, Evo... Well, not Evo, but the rest of the POWs being moved to another city. What's the point? Hmm. Um, and it's Mikhail who <laughs> suddenly at the end of the film gets this... this he gets re-energised by the idea of moving these POWs away from Belakotarnovo. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like this completely useless t- um, manoeuvre to move these, these POWs away. But he gets excited about it because he's doing something. He feels like he's helping the war effort. Okay, And Mikhail yeah. is this character that you, you have to feel pity for because he's so devoted that he gets excited about doing something that there is no point to. Hmm. And is completely blind to his wife's suffering and being with another man. Now that you mention actually the prisoners of war moving out of Velikoturnovo and going to Dobrich, the way it was shot, it really reminded me of the Prince of Egypt and the Exodus episode from the Old Testament. It's the ending shot of the whole film. Yes. And, and the, the final question that you 
you can feel the filmmakers asking is just why what's the point mm. to set them free the war's basically over already and you make a point as well in your notes where you say he's never whistled before the whole reason why <laughs> evil gets gets shot at the very end is that he whistles um to get Lisa's attention we never see him whistle to her before true so it that is a mistake maybe it was in there they cut it they forgot to add it back in shoddy shoddy filmmaking maybe I don't think so. It's not shoddy. This is not a shoddily made film. No, no, no. But even in the best made films, even in those that we give tens out of tens to, there are sometimes minor mistakes. Not this one with that ranking. Well, shall we? Shall we put that to test? Shall we see where we're at with ranking? Yeah, let's go for that. So, just like last time, we're going to begin with our acting ranking from one to ten. And I know I'm going to be very biased here because of Nevena Kokunova, but also Mila Radovic's acting, which I have seen before. And yet, having only seen this film once more than 10 years ago, I was still surprised by the level of acting and commitment and the skill which these people displayed. So for the believability of the love story and for the pure nihilism of Mikhail, I'm going to give the acting an 8 out of 10. Well, I, I think with, with acting in older films and from cultures that are not those which I'm necessarily used to, it would be silly to judge it against standards of today. Partly because mm-hmm. acting, mm-hmm. as with any art form, is one that goes through various changes over time. Yeah, Stylistically, the acting in this film is pretty fucking good. Yeah. I have a soft spot in my heart for it, partly because I, my experience with acting is from theatre, and I like it when people do big stuff in film, when the, the facial expressions are big. So, on that, I'm going to give the acting a 9 out of 10. Wow! Um, another thing about the acting, if you were to compare this to a lot of Western films of the same time, and a little bit earlier, the kind of 50s... Uh, into the 60s the acting is actually very similar these are mm. these are professionals who have done probably some theatre acting and so they're used to that and so it, it's not the same as acting is today but would you want it to be I, I don't want all of my acting to be De Niro-esque Christian Bale-esque mm. method bullshit I, I want some of it to be in fact most of it to be very different to that and I think that this is a very good film acting wise. And then the next category we're moving on to is cinematography. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're going to have a lot more to say about this than I will. Well, do you want me to start? Yeah, why not? This is a film that follows the rules of a lot of <laughs> Soviet filmmaking of the time, but also kind of broadens them ever so slightly. I think technically it's very, very good. Um, there's hardly a foot put wrong. But I, I think that actually that's more a fault of the writing when it happens mm. than the cinematography. It's a gorgeous film. Um, once you get over the black and white, which some people have a problem with, I don't. It's, it's a 9 out of 10, again. Cinematographically, it's a very good film. Well, I guess it's definitely useful to have someone who is so steeped into film history and film theory as you observe <laughs> this and give me another impression, another way of looking at this film, simply because... When I was watching the film, there were some moments during the montage sequences and scenes where I felt a bit lost and I felt like the film had 
let go of my hand and it was kind of waiting for me to just follow it independently. And I tried to do that to the best of my abilities, but I would still give the cinematography an 8 out of 10, simply for the presence of such moments where I was feeling a little bit uncertain, unsure, and as if I wasn't well prepared or informed enough to make my own conclusions. However, I do second your opinions that it is a beautiful film to observe and the shooting of some of the scenes is a real marvel, especially in terms of presenting the nature of Veliko Ternovo. I think that one aspect which is slightly less impressive is the music. Yes, I do agree with you there. Um, I think that the music does a lot of aping hmm. of the action. It copies, it mirrors the action. There are bits of it that are good, but it's very expected. You know, it's, yes. it's very it's very theatrical film of its era, Soviet music. Um, and while that's great, I think that <laughs> it, you, you kind of have to go, oh, okay, I've heard this before. Um, so I would give that a 6 out of 10. Okay, okay, so this is going to be the first time in the ranking of this film that my score will be higher than yours because I've given the music a 7 out of 10. Mostly for all the reasons which you said, namely the mimicking of the action which the music underscores and heightens, but also just the distinct lack of music in other moments where dialogue, yes, could happen, but also dialogue doesn't happen, and I guess having seen some films with terrific musical scores as a part of this project has made me a bit more attuned to that than usual. However, I do still stand by the 7 out of 10 I give the music. Okay, I'm with you. When it comes to the writing and the themes of the film, so far so expected. Yeah. It's very Route 1, you know, hmm. love story, doomed, in the shadows of war, etc, etc, etc. Sex is death. <laughs> Something like well, that. Um, Without typhoid. But it doesn't It doesn't come down on the side of the fact that Lisa is bad for doing what she's doing. She's not bad or sinful. It's just that it's a tragedy that unfolds, well, partly because of what they do, but also mm. because of the situation. I mean, it, it is one of those star-crossed lovers situations. I do, however, like nuances within the script, a lot of mm. the kind of philosophical and, and kind of debating dialogue that's given to the French captain... And Ivor, um, some of the stuff that Mikhail says is very prophetic and interesting. Yep, yep. The conversations about honour and the kind of debate about the purpose of war. I do think that the sometimes what you said about getting confused at points is less to do with the filmmaking techniques and more to do with the writing. Because, of course, techniques have to be backed up by the writing. Mm -hmm. My opinion would be that this film's writing and themes should be given a 7 out of 10. Mm -hmm. I completely understand your opinions and your thoughts, and I do believe that for a story which is so, as you say, expected, clear-cut, by the numbers, it does still offer some interesting elements to provoke thought and provoke conversation after you've seen it, whenever you may be watching it even, just like we did about, yeah, 60 years almost after its first release mm. and the fact that we're still having conversations about it the fact that we're still mentioning the short story written by Emilian Stanev on which this is all based is just incredible and this is why I do agree with your score of a 7 out of 10 on the writing and themes mm. could we agree the first time excellent 
Well, maybe that trend will continue for our next category, which I'm always excited to share, namely the one weird element of the film you decided to talk about and rank. Znaczy, z този film, mojot stranen neobičajen element, koito iskakta pokaže ili koito iskakta obsadja poskoro, e fakta, če Ivo Bretenovic postojano uspjava da se izmakne od šibanja lager. So Ivo Bretenovic just keeps on managing to escape from the bloody POW camp unnoticed to go and see Lisa. There's only a handful of times in which he gets caught. One of them being simply because he brought back peaches from the orchard. Mm. No other reason. For which he then landed into solitary confinement next to the cell of the French captain. But it's like routine to him. He knows how to escape the prisoner of war camp. So, yeah, based on that weird element alone, I'm going to give the film a ranking of 6 out of 10. Mm. Simply for the lack of continuity and lack of proper Wait, it, armed presence. <laughs> yeah. For, for um, prisoner of war camps in the World Wars being such a theme in film, you would think that they were not prisoners at all the way that he treats this camp. He was like, <laughs> oh, a wall? Guess I'll just fucking phase through it like Shadow Cat. Uh, that's a very niche <laughs> reference to the X-Men, by the way. Mm. Um, I'm going to talk about kind of a couple of things as my weird element. Please which do. Which connected to the symbolism okay, that's excellent. in the film. Because there's a lot of weird symbolism that uh-huh. goes down. But it kind of links back to the first time that Evil and Lisa meet. Mm. Um, the, the premise of him coming in and stealing the peaches is yeah okay it's 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 a pretty normal way for the, their love story to be introduced maybe it makes more sense in the short story but i'm sort of like why the fuck is she welcoming him inside and giving him a load of fucking meze i think that she is a very strange character <laughs> um Partly because she's given so little to say. Okay. But therefore she's kind of difficult to sympathise with. Okay. Hmm. She does a lot of umming and ahhing. We're actually switched off as an audience from liking her in her Hmm. emotional turmoil. The person that we sympathise with is evil. Yeah. Despite the fact that sometimes he's an asshole. But si- the symbolism is all focused on her state of mind, mm-hmm. on on her journey through the relationship. In my mind, their relationship is not given enough like impetus to actually start. In a lot of love story films, you you understand why the couple get together. Now, one reading is that she is absolutely gagging for it because Mikhail hasn't touched her for fucking ages because his leg's too limpy or whatever. Like, that that would be understandable. But she's not a sex-crazed maniac. She's not a nymphomaniac. To me, it's very strange the way that their relationship starts. Very Hmm. strange. Um, And the symbolism, I would prefer it to be more tied into making me understand that relationship. Because most of the time... It switches you off a little bit. It's a weird part of the film. It's not done well enough. I wanted more. So I have to give it a 4 out of 10 on that basis. You wanted more explanation of the symbolism. Yeah. And not just having a symbolist forest through which Ivo may be running 
and his thoughts may be saying, Ho, oh, run for that vagina! That vagina is worth life and typhoid! To be honest, I think a few men throughout history have actually thought that. It's a weird one. But in terms of the overall ranking of the film, yes. I, I, I come back to what I said at the start. I understand completely why it's a classic and mm. why it's a landmark film in Bulgaria. I understand the love that people have for it. It, it shares a lot of techniques with some films from the West. True. Um, it's not just associated with Soviet filmmaking techniques. While we were watching it, you you shouted out a film that both of us have seen. You shouted out, oh, that's similar to The Innocents, which is an <laughs> adaptation of The Turn of the Screw from 1961. Um, and yeah, there's a, there's, there is some crossover with, with certain, certain films. It's definitely worth watching. So mm. get your subscription to Gletham. And, and watch it. Um, it is, for me, an 8 out of 10. Wow. Amazing. I am so pleased that the first Bulgarian film I've shown to you gets that high of a ranking. I know how to pick them. You know, a lot of the things you said about the film hold true for me as well. And it was a real pleasure to come back to it and experience it once again, this time with someone who is completely new to it, however, has a lot of knowledge in film theory and film history. However, I will still come back to the point of the well-made play and how signposted it all is, but that is counterbalanced, I think, with the beautiful use of symbolism. Beautiful, albeit confusing. So my overall ranking is a 7 out of 10 for the film, with the following more than five word summary. Hmm. A well-made play structure in a black and white film recording. We, we definitely like the film. I Absolutely. Think that's safe to say. Good. Um, and I think so... we will be visiting gledam.bg again. Yes, very soon. <laughs> now, um, should we do a few trivia facts and a few quotes to uh, finish off? Oh, yes, we can definitely Our try. quotes, not quotes from the film. So, the film had various release uh, locations and dates. Um, according to the information that I've managed to find, it was actually first released in Greece. Ooh. Um, at the Thessaloniki International Film Festival in September 1964. Wow. The second place it was released was actually in Italy, hmm. also in September, at the Venice Film Festival of, of ah. 1964. Its Bulgarian release date was November the 9th, 1964. And then the next place it was released was in East Germany in June hmm. 1965. Hungary, September 1965. The United Kingdom, November 1965. Poland, 1966. The Soviet Union, not until March 1966. Oh. And then a TV release in the Soviet Union in January 1967. Sweden in May 1968. The United States in September 1969. Mm. Argentina in June 1976. And then we hop to a re-release with Greece uh, making note of a um, possibly an anniversary, um, November the 6th, 2017, at another instance of the Thessaloniki International Film Festival. So interesting in terms of when it was actually released. Indeed, and actually the first two places you mentioned, Greece and Italy, the fact that it was released at the Venice Film Festival just makes me think how much money and how much support this film received, probably from the government, Another fact which I can add to our discussion, within the film, they pronounce and use Ivo Bretenovic's surname as Ivo Obrenovic. Yes. Instead of Obretenovic. This is interesting because we have been referring to him throughout as Obretenovic. Um, using his surname as it was originally written in the short story. Yes. 
However, as you say, in the film they changed it. One possible reason is to um, avoid any sort of connection to a revolutionary figure from Bulgarian history named Georgi Obretenov, and was a prominent figure in the April Uprising of 1876, or mm. Aprilskotovastanie, this figure, Georgi Obretenov, who was Bulgarian, perhaps mm. that's one point they're trying to, you know, avoid any suggestion that Ivor is actually Bulgarian. They want to make it clear that he's Serbian. True. Um, and also the fact that this figure was a revolutionary. Because mm. it's still a Soviet film, um, and it's possible that they're wanting to keep away from any connections to revolutionaries, despite the fact that the Soviet Union was founded on a revolution. I would also like to share the fact that Emilian Stanev is actually a pseudonym. The author's real name is actually Nikola Stoyanov Stanev. Fascinating. Um, Rade Markovic, the guy who plays Evil, lived until 2010. After meeting Nevena Kokonova, um, he actually had a long affair with her. Ooh. Um, so that's interesting. Our trivia facts this episode are a little bit um, thin on the ground, let's say. But I believe we can still finish off this podcast episode with some of our more colorful and interesting quotes. So I'm going to start off with a quote which Lisa says to Ivo. Когато се появи, разбрах, че на този свят има нещо друго. When you appeared, I understood that there is something else in this world. And I just found that as a really nice, touching quote between lovers. The name Obrenovic is also connected to a Serbian royal dynasty mm. that um, ruled Serbia from 1815 to 1842, and then again from 1858 to 1903. So perhaps they're mm. extra um, reinforcing the fact that Ivol is Serbian by associating him with a royal family. I've got a note here that says that when we we open the film with the opening mm. credits and we're shown kind of establishing shots of Veliko Ternovo, it's kind of like a travel guide. It's kind of yeah. like a... Um, yeah. Travel book. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of um, showing me the, the city and being like, come to Bulgaria, <laughs> um, which oh. I, I appreciated. Also in the opening uh, shots of the film, we've got um, Mikhail doing a little dance, or mm. what I thought was a dance. I was like, show them your dancing move. He's actually showing the soldiers how to kill with a bayonet, but yes. it looks just like some ballet. So... One of the first lines that Mikhail has in the film is We have grown old, my girl. And then, almost near the end, Lisa says I'm thinking about growing old. And not about growing old as in the action, but about growing old as in the process. I think the first one there is telling, because it's almost certain that Mikhail and Lisa married when she was very young, hmm. and he was almost middle-aged. Because there is a significant age gap and it's connoted very well. Uh, even from very early on, I'm saying hair is not historically accurate. <laughs> and it's underlined. <laughs> um, oh, that's fine. We allow it. There are lingering shots on Mikhail eating a tomato. Hmm. And my note is, this is giving Denethor and Lord of the Rings a run for his money. <laughs> There's lingering shots on John Noble's face as he's eating tomatoes in Return of the King. I, I just got vibes of that when Mikhail's eating his... It looks to be tomatoes. It's black and white. You can't actually tell. This was before I knew that she was his wife. I was like, <laughs> is Lisa Mikhail's wife? 
or his housekeeper because it is not clear at the beginning like she she's doing very servanty stuff which does make sense with her being his wife but the age gap is so big that you're kind of like wait they're not married. Oh, they are. And oh, they sleep in the same bed. Oh, they are married. Yeah, yeah. You ha- you literally have to wait until you see them in the same bed together to know for sure that they're husband and wife. Even in Mikhail's absence, there are signs of his presence and his power in the house. Namely, his guns, a self-portrait of him, and a bronze statue of him. The camera lingers on them for a bit just to show again his presence. Oh, yeah. It's clear that he goes hard. Uh, he also goes not hard, hard enough. Not peaches and cheese is not enough to formulate this kind of obsession. Why are all the men in this film so obsessed with her? Honestly, and just on the note of him ex- escaping, I have written down here bribery, utter charm. How does Obretenovich keep escaping? She's worth escaping for in his mind, mm. obviously, and, and we've made note of how beautiful she is, but my god, like, the way that she's dressed, there's this theory of how women were supposed to be in Britain in the Victorian era, mm-hmm. the angel in the house, and she literally ticks that box. It's all bullshit. Boris's obsession with Nevena Kokonova has me questioning how gay he actually is. That's one of my notes. I mean, she is just beautiful to look at. Also, I don't know, there are some quotes here that don't make any sense. <laughs> I've, I've written lesbians in the church. I don't understand. <gasps> no, that, that does make sense. I have a quote about Lisa having a very sensual eye contact and holding a very sensual gaze from another woman in the church where they oh. do not exchange any words but they exchange very longing gazes. Well, yeah, okay. I'm glad, thank you for explaining the note which didn't make any sense to me. Um, you see, you, you watch these films, you don't remember everything even when you're taking notes. Nope. A note like lesbians in the church isn't necessarily going to give me like all the information that I need past Sam, so thanks for that. Mm. There's a very good tr- transition from rain to rain at a point in the in the in the film where it, where we're shown the rain in one place and it goes to another place and it's clearly the same rain and it goes from being the rain where Lisa is to the rain where Mikhail is and it's very good good continuity good symbolist teleporting oh my god the teleporting makes no sense <laughs> zero it's, it's, sense it's it's a fact of montage that they yeah. teleport all over the place yeah valid Oh yeah, Mikhail has a cigarette holder, which makes him very kind of loose and, and... Kind of effeminate. Well, kind of effeminate, but also very kind of um, representative of bourgeoisie. <laughs> and my final quote, which I'll go with is, Death is your reward for whistling. Okay, well, that just goes to show you, everyone. Whistling without prior consent or without prior display whistling without consent <laughs> sounds like a weird crime to be put in in the dock for <laughs> will result in punishment whether you like it or not <laughs> thank you for staying with us um and for listening to the end of this episode about a film which we're really happy to bring to the attention of people who haven't seen before and um, to remind people who have seen it before of it Да, отново просто искаме да кажем, че много-много се радваме, че останахте с нас през целият този епизод, през всичките изключително трудни за проследяване и може би не толкова точни, малко завъртени и малко объркващи 
опити да обясним един филм и опити да представим един филм, който не всички са гледали, не много хора си спомнят за него, може би, или просто не толкова много хора са го гледали наскоро. И за това просихме да кажем отново, че много-много, изключително много благодарим на гледам.бг That is, we're thanking and we're so thankful to гледам.бг That is, g-l-e-d-a-m.bg And we swear that we didn't organize a sponsorship before this. Просто искаме да кажем благодарим ви, пишете ни, свържете се с нас по каквито искате начини и много ще се радваме, ако останете с нас за следващия епизод. Um, and we look very much forward to inviting you back and joining us again for another episode of Re-Encounters. Re-Encounters.